Our scripture this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Now concerning the matters about which he wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. These are the words of the Lord. In this room this morning is someone who either has or is cheating on your spouse. You say, what a dire way to begin a sermon. Well, the statistics show that 22% of men and 19% of women admit to having cheated on their husband or their wife. When in 2015, the website Ashley Madison was hacked and information of quite famous people was discovered, uh, you perhaps would have thought that that would have shut down Ashley Madison for good. Uh, Ashley Madison, if you do not know, is a website that invites married men and women, people in committed relationships, to set up an account for the purpose of cheating on their spouse. That is the point of the website. Uh, in 2015, there were 37 million users of Ashley Madison. In February of 2019, which is the last time I found the data, there are now 60 million users of that website. So the fact that information was compromised, which led to significant embarrassment of important people, did not at all deter almost 30 million more from participating. Sex is a powerful drive, and God invented it, and like everything else God invented, we have distorted and twisted it as humanity. Unless you think this is new, the Corinthians had their own issues with sex. It is flawed to think that everything today is worse than it's ever been. That isn't the case. It is egocentric and short-sighted to think that real challenges didn't exist when Paul wrote this letter in the first century to the Corinthians, and those real challenges have now today surfaced. We act as if in 2021 the world has never faced a pandemic uh, earthquakes have never happened, and cultures have never collapsed, but sadly, there is history of all of those. 
Corinth was a commercial center uh, because of where it was located. Uh, it was a wealthy, thriving city in Paul's day. Uh, Corinth as a city was completely uh, destroyed in the second century BC, but Julius Caesar in 44 BC reestablished the city. And as soon as he did, people came pouring into this city. Young entrepreneurs looking to begin business uh, because of the location of the city on an isthmus, because uh, of the port, all of those things, Corinth became a thriving city. It also had its fair share of social and cultural and moral issues Socially and culturally, it was quite diverse. People came from Africa. They came from Asia. They came from Egypt. They came from Greece and Rome. And they came from Israel to settle there. You could worship any god you wanted, just a smorgasbord of gods that you could worship if you came to Corinth. And there were those weird, strange people who thought there was only one god, and they built a place called a synagogue, and they worshiped there too, the Jews. That was the city of Corinth. Every city in that day had a problem with prostitution. Corinth was no different, but the problem seemed to be more pronounced because archaeologists discovered in the city of Corinth uh, clay depictions of human genitals with a space to put a candle in them as offerings to gods because most likely of sexually transmitted diseases. And they knew there was a problem, but medicine didn't have answers. So they turned to their various gods for the answers. And you thought today was bad. Corinth was the Los Angeles, the New York City, the Las Vegas, the Atlanta of the day. Paul planted a church there. I love that, don't you? He planted a church right in the middle of all of that, and the church struggled against it all. As a matter of fact, in chapter 5, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, there is a man in the Corinthian church who's having sex with his stepmother, and the church is turning a blind eye. And Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. And you thought the Bible didn't apply to today? This, these troubles abounded. The first six chapters of, uh, of the letter to the Corinthian church, they're pretty rough. And Paul uses a pretty stern uh, tone, but the tone changes in chapter 7, and he begins to answer their questions, questions they have, and the first answer to the first question has to do with sex. Verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Uh, Paul seems to be quoting a a line from their letter, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And he answers that question with two words, if you're married, have sex. That's his answer. It's right here. 
He says, you wrote this. And so I'll give you three reasons Paul says it all from here. Number one, have sex protect one another. Verse two, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Paul isn't advocating marriage to avoid sexual immorality. You know that later in this same chapter, Paul wishes that they were single as he is. So that would be contradictory. No, he's advocating sex between a husband and a wife in marriage to protect that marriage. Each man should have his own wife, and each uh, 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 wife should have her own husband. Uh, euphemistically means to, to have sex with. Why? Because of sexual immorality. That word immorality is actually plural. It's immoralities, meaning sexual sins of many kinds. The list was then like the list is today, adultery fornication, homosexuality, lesbianism, and bestiality, sex with animals. It was prevalent then as it is on the rise today with its own organization and its own advocacy groups. We would add to this list in our day pornography in Paul's day, it would have been live. Prostitution, rampant then and now. And I would add reality shows like The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, Love Island, and daytime soap operas. It seems that wives appropriately balk at their husbands and are hurt deeply when their husbands look at pornography, but somehow dismiss their own light versions of it. While Paul isn't suggesting that sex is just so that you will avoid sexual sin, he is making it clear that sex in marriage is an antidote to sex outside of marriage. He's making that clear. So let me speak to that for a moment. No one else's sex life is any of your business. None at all. Do the movies, the YouTube videos, the TikTok videos, the Netflix shows, HBO, network shows you watch, focus on someone else's sex or sexuality? Do they? If so, that will become a cheap replacement for the valuable gift of sex in your own marriage. What would happen if you invested as much time in your sexual relationship as you did exploring through your eyes the sexual relationships of others? What might happen? You say, well, where would I find resources? I'll give you a simple website, familylife.com. Go to familylife.com, go to the search engine, type in the word sex, and you'll discover godly, biblically-based, grounded resources. 
So if you're married, have sex. Protect one another. Secondly, have sex. Love one another. Uh, Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Rights is the word. It's the language of obligation. It suggests that once you marry as husband and wife, you are in debt to one another sexually. What do Paul's words here prohibit? Sexual bargaining. I'll make love to you if. Now, it's interesting that Paul addresses men first, and he says to the man, give the woman her conjugal rights. You see, men in Paul's day had the upper hand. They could deny sex for a variety of reasons, as they could rule for a variety of reasons in a variety of ways. And Paul goes at that chauvinism by saying to the man first, Do not deny your wife. If you were a Jewish man and you didn't want to have sex with your wife, all you had to say was, I'm reading the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. I'm just reading the Bible. But he does not leave out the wife. In our day, and in Paul's day too, women um, knew the power and know the power of their bodies. And in my counseling, if I look across the 20-some years of counseling of couples, I've discovered more often than not, this isn't always the case, but in a preponderance of the cases, that the woman, out of whatever emotion, will deprive her husband of sex as a bargaining tool because she is angry, she is frustrated, she may be fill in the blank. And I have on more than one occasion looked at women in my office who do that and say, you are prostituting yourself inside the marriage context. Your body isn't a bargaining tool. Never should be. Sexual bargaining is wrong, always. It's also interesting that Paul never addresses procreation here. He assumes that his readers know that sex is intended to produce children. I said in the very first sermon, every sermon in this series will be based on Genesis 2. Be fruitful and multiply. Philo was a Jewish philosopher born in 25 BC, would have been a contemporary of Paul, wrote that when married partners have intercourse for pleasure instead of for procreation, they are like pigs and goats. There was a negative view of sex for pleasure. The Bible disagrees completely with that thought. But there was also a group of women in the Corinthian church that became known, uh, nicknamed, if you will, the, the eschatological women eschatological women. I would just say graciously and lovingly, eschatological women are on the rise today too. You say, who are eschatological women? Well, in the Corinthian church, they were women who had gotten so locked in on the return of Christ that they did not see his work in the present. They could only anticipate his work in the future. 
These eschatological women are spoken to. You could do a study through the letter to the first letter to the Corinthians, and you'll find references to these eschatological women all through the letter. They believed that they had already attained the resurrection from the dead. They believed that sex was so earthly so as not to merit their time or their attention. They were godly, holy, too much for that. Eschatological women. I would say they were too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. And I would say that the pandemic has given rise to a whole new movement of eschatological people. For some reason, because we have a convergence of earthquakes and, uh, and, and a pandemic, uh, we in our egocentrism think there's never been that before. And so it must, because of the convergence of different things, say that Jesus Christ is coming Well, he is. Before 2019, his return was as imminent as it is now. The pandemic doesn't somehow amp up the timetable. That's set. We've just become quite obsessed. Third, have sex, surrender to one another, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. That word authority is what you think it means. It means power. Marriage is the ultimate giving of oneself to another. And so have sex, submit to or surrender to one another. Gordon Fee writes, Paul puts sexual relationship within Christian marriage on much higher grounds than one finds in most cultures, including the church, where sex is often viewed as the husband's privilege and the wife's obligation. That's true. More often than not, it isn't. It is true. You say, well, Jerry, that's so stereotypical. Well, sometimes stereotypical is reflection of the truth. And that is true. More often than not, the husband views sex as his privilege and the wife views it as a duty or an obligation. So I'd ask you frankly but respectfully, how often do you initiate sex between you and your spouse? Is there a balance there between the two of you? There is to be mutual submission. Verse 5 says, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's interesting, the word deprive here is the word cheat or defraud. You see, there are two kinds of cheating that happen in marriage. There's the husband or wife who cheat on their spouse with another person. And then there's the husband or wife who cheat against their spouse because they refuse or deny them sex. Within marriage, according to Scripture, both are cheating. This is a defrauding of one another. Paul writes to cheat. 
Oh no, it's not near as serious, and don't hear me, that it's near as serious as cheating with someone else. That is adultery, one of the big 10, not near as serious. But it is sin and wrong. When one feels defrauded, distance occurs. And this distance opens the door for the enemy to work. Satan loves division, doesn't he? If he can somehow create it inside your marriage, in your family, he will do everything he can. So I love how Paul says it, how the Spirit inspired him to write it. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. Meaning that when you say, we're going to abstain from sex with one another, it is a mutual uh, uh, abstaining, and it's also a mutual reason that you don't, but the two of you are praying together. You get the news that your daughter has, uh, has wandered away, and the two of you just fall on your face and pray together. The diagnosis is cancer, and you pray together. That's what he's talking about, but he's saying you can't do that forever. He says, come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control, meaning there are very few prayer needs that merit eight months of prayer and no sex. That's what that means. The last week of uh, sabbatical, Wendy and I took a little trip to Florida, and we got on the airplane, and uh, the pilot was quite humorous, and he said, just reminding you that as long as you're on this plane, your mask must stay on unless you're eating. He said, the record so far for a small bag of peanuts is two hours and 39 minutes. (laughs) Loved his sense of humor. Paul says, just for a little bit, pull apart just for a little bit, come back together. Why? Because Satan will tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul, who is single, recognizes how significant the sex drive is. We could talk about sex all day long, and our culture does too much, and our church doesn't enough. But the reality is that when I do premarital counseling and and the other staff does it here, one of the questions is your sexual history What's happened sexually before now? And sometimes that's a long conversation. Do you you know that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for your sexual history? He died for the baggage that you tend to tug along behind you and that nothing that you have done sexually escapes the grace of God. Where sin 
abounds, grace abounds, what? All the more. But also we discover by Paul's reference to praying together, uh, in this passage we discover that there is more than one kind of intimacy. And every healthy marriage will have these five intimacies, and you may want to jot them down. The first, emotional intimacy, sharing your hearts with one another. Uh, we, in counseling, talk about talking below the line, talking about how you feel about something. Emotional intimacy, intellectual intimacy, sharing your minds with one another. Just watch the news together and give your opinion. Hopefully it's safe in your marriage to do that. That's intellectual intimacy. Study the word together and talk about what you think it means. Three, spiritual intimacy, sharing your souls with each other. Praying together doing a devotional together. Fourth, social intimacy. Sharing friends, friendships. You as husband and wife need other godly friends, married friends that you do life with together. They'll make you better. They'll be a source of relief, and, and you'll hang out with them and think, uh, we're, we're not the only ones screwed up. Amen? Yeah. And finally, physical intimacy, sharing bodies with one another. All five of these intimacies must come together, and as they do, it, it, it's a mix of them. It, it's never a formula. It's less science and more art. But I'm just saying to you, in your married life, you need to pursue them all. Engage them all. Uh, why? By and large, again, I'll draw from years of counseling women tend to feel emotionally neglected and men tend to feel physically neglected. And both are right. And all of these intimacies are needed. All right, so a tool. So true confession from Wendy and me, our daughter Hannah gave us one of these and it sat at our house for six months before we started using it. <laughs> We're pretty pathetic. All right, so six months, and Hannah will go, have you started that? Nope. Six months. Then we started it, and oh my goodness, the best marriage tool we've ever used. It's a weekly journal. It's called the Marriage Journal. It's a bit pricey. It's 30 bucks. You're like, 30 bucks for a book? I know that's a man thought. 
and yet you would pay 25 for a steak. All right, so, um, so let's talk about this for a moment. We're going to order a slew of these. There's only one place that we found to order them. Uh, uh, there may be more, but we're going to order a slew of these. We just need to know how many we need to order. We'll get them in here, and they'll be available in next steps. We have none here uh, because of the price. We just didn't want to order a bunch and leave them here. How does it work? It's quite simple. It's not long, and it isn't hard. You have week one. Your devotional is this long. This is one week, all right? So Wendy and I do this on Saturday mornings, and then you look at your week. I think you can kind of see this just a little. Okay, this is what we got coming up this week. So you just say, oh, here's what we got. And that eliminates a lot of surprises. Here are the questions. Number one, we ask these questions now, Wendy and I do. Uh, what brought you joy this week? Isn't that a good way to start? You ask that every single week. What brought you joy? Number two, what is something that was hard this week? Three, what is one thing I can do for you this week? One thing, just one thing. If you need one thing from me this week, honey, what is it? Number four, is there any unconfessed sin, conflict, or hurt that we need to resolve this week? It's good. Five, what is a dream, craving, or desire that has been on the forefront of your mind? Often in that question, Wendy and I will just kind of wander off into whatever land of what we've been thinking about that week. And finally, how can I pray for you this week? Jot it down. That's it. And then week two, it's on covenant. Same thing. Once a month, I think it's on week four. There's an additional called monthly discussion. How are we stewarding our finances? How is our sex life? Once a month. So, if you would like one of these, what we need you to do is just let us know. So go to Next Steps afterward and just say, put me down. I'd like to have uh, uh, one of these. I think it is your next best step to pursuing the five intimacies that we've talked about. Lord, I thank you that your word speaks to the details of our lives, every, every detail, and it does so tastefully and graciously. Lord, I have not tried to add a single thing to your word this morning. There's danger in that. But, but neither have I tried to water down or take away. There's danger in that too. Our desire is that families flourish in this place. Oh God, we pray that you would uh, use these words, feeble as they may be, on my lips, but strong, carried by the Spirit. And all God's people say,